Speaking of those who major in the minors or in the gray areas, here's Pastor Ed Taylor. There are no gray areas when it comes to the morality and the perfection of God and what he expects from us as believers. In the realm of morality, that's not what they're weak in. On the contrary, they will often be the ones that stand up for what they believe. You'll see them take a strong stand, but often they will take a strong stand on non-essentials and try to make that strong stand their conviction. They're going to try to make it your conviction. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You There are many gray areas, like dancing, for example. And so the question comes up, can you dance? And the answer is, some can and some can't. All kidding aside, how should we respond to the differing ideas about what's acceptable for the Christian? We'll look into that today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're about to continue our study of Romans. Here now to pick things up from Romans 14 is Pastor Ed. Well, whenever you gather people together, whenever large groups of people gather together, whenever small groups of people gather together, there's going to be friction. It's not a matter of if there'll be friction. It's only a matter of when there'll be friction. Sometimes it's friction that you have created. It's coming from you. You're having a bad day. You're walking in the flesh and something happens and there is a situation that comes up and you actually cause the friction. Sometimes the friction is caused by someone else and we receive it. Sometimes I cause it. Sometimes you cause it. Sometimes we cause it. But anytime there's large groups of people together, you can expect it. Friction. So I looked that word up in the dictionary, and as it relates to people, the definition is interesting. It means the clash of differing opinions or attitudes. So when you think of friction among people, think of a clashing together of differing ideas and opinions and attitudes. Now, I don't know if you've ever viewed the church that way, but you need to. You need to be ready for friction among the body of Christ. In your church, in this church, in our church, you need to be open and ready. There's going to be friction and most likely you'll be involved in one way or another. And how you respond to friction is so vitally important because it's going to happen. I know we tend to let our guards down when we come to church, when we gather together like this. There is that sense of letting our guards down and and enjoying, I mean, because the attitude we have when we come together is, oh, come on, Ed, when we gather together, when we worship, when we sing, we're at church. I mean, isn't it supposed to be like a heavenly experience? And to that, I would say we're not in heaven yet, all right? (laughs) Just know that. We're this side of heaven, and all the wonderful joys of being together is great, but we're this side of heaven. Or as one person said, To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory, but to live below with the saints we know, (laughs) that's a different story. And it's true. 
Even though the church is a place, the gathering together of the saints is a wonderful thing, a community of the redeemed, an encouraging time, there's going to be friction. And there was friction in the church in Rome, picking up in verse 1 of Romans 14. He says, receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, this is not a singling out of vegetarians here, okay? So if you're a vegetarian, you've chosen to eat that way, great. This isn't a practical decision that Paul's addressing here. It's a spiritual thing. And we'll get into that in just a moment. So some people in the church, they they just viewed, hey, I can eat anything. And some people restricted their diets on purpose to just vegetables. Paul says for the, verse 2, the one that believes he can eat all things, but the ones that restricted their diet in this case... Paul describes as weak. I want you to see that. Verse 3. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. So there is conflict going on in the church in Rome. There's a clashing of attitudes and opinions. And the topic is under the category, notice in verse 1, of doubtful things. The whole issue is over doubtful things. Now, we don't use the phrase doubtful things these days. Instead, we usually refer to doubtful things as the gray areas of the Christian life. The gray areas. There's a lot of conflict going on in the early church over the gray areas. And unfortunately, there tends to be a lot of conflict going on in the church today over gray areas, over doubtful things. The issue at hand for the church in Rome was over two things primarily, diets and days. What they ate and what they didn't eat and when they worshipped and how they worshipped on what day. These were the two controversies that brought about this friction. We may not argue so much about diets and days today. Just as we don't use the word doubtful things, we aren't meeting too many people that like to argue about what you eat and what you don't eat. Although there are groups today that will make a huge issue over what you eat and try to lay a heavy legalistic trip on you that you've got to eat according to the Levitical law in order to be a strong, upstanding Christian. And they'll make it a point of division. The Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't make it a point of division for the believer. There are even groups today that will make a big issue on what day you worship. There are some that say, if you don't worship on Saturday, you're, well, you've taken the mark of the beast. But the, my Bible says, then not let anyone judge me on what day I worship. I can worship on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and start again on Saturday. It's not what day. I've met people that like to make a point over how someone dresses. When they come to church, like there's supposed to be a way to stress when you come to church and there are church clothes and there is a certain way. And after all, the way you dress is very important to God and don't dress this. And they make a point of contention over it. Surely the Bible speaks of being dressed modestly. Yes. The Bible speaks of being dressed according to your gender. Yes. Not to confuse that. But I mean, really, is it a point of contention so much that we need to divide over it some people make an issue in churches over the music oh we can only sing the hymns of old that only really date back to the 1800s what did they sing before that 
Because hymns, they have a special place in our heart. And I love it that our worship leaders are introducing more and more hymns. It actually, some of those songs remind me of me growing up as a little kid in church. They're so wonderful songs. They're rich in theology and they got a good tune to them. And and it's great. But is that all that we're supposed to use? Some people make an issue of musical instruments. Yes, no, you can't, no. Sing fast, sing slow, one leg up, one eye closed, whatever. And they make it an issue of fellowship. When indeed it's a gray area. According to Psalm 150, just everything, man, praise the Lord. And we need to be careful. People argue about what Bible translation to use when they really should just be obeying the one that they use (laughs) and not make a big issue over it. And in the first century, remember, the church was made up of primarily two groups of people, Gentiles and those that were Jews. The Jews brought with them into the church a lot of religious baggage, a lot of tradition, including the Levitical ceremonial dietary restrictions that were placed upon the children of Israel by covenant, the old covenant, by God. They brought it with them. Now they're living under the new covenant, but they're bringing the old covenant with them. The Gentiles, they didn't care. Feed me. That's all they cared about. They didn't care about anything about where the food came from, what it was. They realized that food wasn't the issue in their worship of God. I'm sure they lived with this truth in mind. Hold your places. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Gentiles understood their freedom in Christ to eat whatever they wanted unto the Lord. And I think they understood this verse well as Paul writes to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice with me verse 8. They understood it. Actually, we'll pick up in verse 7. He says, However, there's not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, here's the picture. It's being painted in Romans 14, but also in 1 Corinthians. The picture is this. The best place to get the best cuts of meat were right outside the pagan temples. Because what the pagans did is they took the choicest animals, they offered them to some false god, and then the best cuts of meat, they had a little meat market outside the temple, and that's where they sold the meat. For the Gentiles that were formerly pagans, they didn't care. They realized it was just meat, and they wanted the best meat, so when they ate it, they knew it was that idols weren't really real. They knew that it was all false. They knew that that it really wasn't sacrificed to some false god, because false gods, there was only one true god, so they had that all figured out. They go, hey, I'll eat whatever. But for the Jews, they're like, no way. There's no way in the world we're going to eat that meat. Are you crazy? That was offered to an idol. We do not want to partake of that meat that was offered to an idol. Now we will be idolatrous. And that's what brought the tension. We're not eating meat. We're not even going to go there. We're just going to eat vegetables. And they made it the measure of their spirituality. Well, Paul's talking about the same thing here to the church in Corinth. And he says in verse 8, But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. But they understood. They understood what Paul was saying here. Hey, look, food doesn't commend us to God. If we eat, great. We don't eat, great. But those in Rome were having a big problem over this, and a lot of friction took place. There were weak Men and women in the church, there were strong men and women in the church. Before we move on, I just want you to see this for the sake of 
those of you that are taking notes or just make a mental note, I want you to see this. Don't miss this. Here we are in the first century, the early church spread to Rome. There they are worshiping God. And I want you to notice this. Even the church in Rome had problems. The early church had its issues. The early church was filled with conflict. When you gather people together, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, there's going to be conflict, even as we see it here. I mean, it started very early, didn't it? The widows in the early church were upset. They thought some were being left out and they began a big fight about it. And the apostles stood up and raised up the deacons to take care of the ministry so that the distribution was even. Very early, there were already widows arguing in the early church. There was that couple, Ananias and Sapphira, lying to the Holy Spirit about what they were offering to the Lord. And God snuffed them out right there as an example to the church not to lie. We read in the church in Corinth, there was envy and there was strife among the believers. There were believers in the church in the, in the area of Corinth there that would raise up some teachers over and above others and say, well, I'm a follower of this guy and I'm a follower of that guy. There were false teachers infiltrating the churches in Galatia and Crete and Ephesus was losing their first love so early, leaving their first love so early. And I say that because sometimes we'll meet people on that quest to find the perfect church maybe you're even on that quest come on ed tell me tell me you're the perfect church man come on tell me i found it well let's just say you did find the perfect church once you became a part of it (laughs) it became imperfect huh you know why because there is no perfect church every gathering of the saints every church is imperfect filled with imperfect people, that God is growing us up. We are a gathering of imperfect people in an imperfect setting, worshiping a perfect God. And God's growing us all up. And so that lifelong quest of finding a perfect church, that's exactly what it's going to be, a lifelong quest, because you're not going to find the perfect church. There is no such thing. Not here, not there, not anywhere. God is working all of us together. He's ministering his spirit through us. Things are getting better. We're growing up in the Lord. But there's no perfect church. And every church has the same ingredients as the church in Rome. Two types of people. The first type is in verse 1 of chapter 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith. I want you to notice that. There are those in the church that are weak in the faith. And then chapter 15, verse 1 gives us the other type of person in the church, and that is, we then who are strong. So two types of people in the church, the weak and the strong. So by way of definition, who exactly are the weak in the church? Who is being described here? I want you to notice right away that it says they are weak in the faith, not weak in faith. So this describes a believer. The person that's weak in the faith is a believer, not an unbeliever, Not even a believer that's living carnally or in the flesh. Not like a person that's trying to hide some sin somewhere or not really going for it. As a matter of fact, the weaker in the faith tend to have a strong desire to follow the Lord. They tend to really love to go for it and give their all. They're weak in the faith. That phrase in the faith is a technical phrase. It refers to our life in Christ. Understanding our freedoms and our liberties in Christ. Those that are weak in the faith isn't someone that's weak morally. 
because the Bible morally is black and white. There are no gray areas when it comes to the morality and the perfection of God and what he expects from us as believers. In the realm of morality, that's not what they're weak in because morally things are black and white. It's weak in the faith, weak in understanding their liberty, weak in understanding their freedom and how to exercise it in the Lord. See, when you describe the weak in the faith, it's not that they are struggling with sin. On the contrary, they will often be the ones that stand up for what they believe. You'll see them take a strong stand, but often they will take a strong stand on non-essentials and try to make that strong stand their conviction. They're going to try to make it your conviction. And those that are weak in the faith love to argue about it. It seems to be what travels with them is arguing. Because what does Paul say? He says it very clearly in verse 1. Receive them, but not to dispute with them even though they might want to argue with you about it. They might want to make it an issue. Truly, those that are weak in the faith are often those that won't let it go. Like you've come to it and it says, here, here's what the Bible says. It really doesn't answer. No, no. And they'll just, they just won't let it go. You want to let it go. They won't let it go. You want to walk away. They follow you. You ask them, you know, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Can we talk about something else? And they just won't because they're weak in the faith and they're wrestling that you don't share the same conviction in this doubtful matter or in this gray area that they do. As they stand up strong in these areas of non-essentials, often they're wrong, and we've all been there. This isn't just like one group. We've all been there. We'll all be there as we have strong convictions that the Lord gives us. Now, their weakness, though, often lies in traditional baggage that weighs down their conscience, and it judges other people who aren't like them, that don't see things the way they do. And it's interesting because religious traditions can be some of the hardest things to break and to let go. The traditions that we might have been raised on, the influence that was given to us early on that wasn't necessarily biblical, wasn't necessarily unbiblical, although some of it is, but it's just become tradition. And religious traditions can even make a normal person act very irrational for the sake of their tradition. And you'll find people that are weak in the faith often defending tradition when the Bible is crystal clear. Those that are weak in the faith have all sorts of traditional baggage and it's from that perspective that they judge others. You could say that they've become oversensitive in non-essentials. And in its extreme, a person that's weak in the faith, in its extreme, a person that's weak in the faith can often be seen as a legalist binding heavy trips on people, holding a standard of righteousness that is different or higher than what the Bible teaches, legalism, taking non-essentials and making them essential. And there's always a danger for us as we interact with each other to do that. So things like music, things like how a person dresses, things like baptism and buildings and songs, they all become an issue of division. And it's so dangerous for those who may have a wider view of Christianity a more stronger understanding of their freedom in Christ, what the Bible would call the stronger in the faith. It just seemed to be able to exercise in Christian freedom far more. They are, when it comes to food, they'll eat all things. We'll get into that where God's going to teach us through Paul how to be careful with our decision-making, not based on our righteousness with God, but based on not wanting to stumble anyone else. And we'll get into that. It's going to be a powerful time for us to learn how to use our Christian freedom But for the sake of this section of scripture, those that are weak 
tend to make non-essentials essential and begin to fight over it. And notice, Paul says, receive them. The context here is simply let them come in. Don't push them out of the congregation. Don't close the doors and lock the doors on them. Receive them. Bring them in. Let them, let them fellowship. Let them be a part of the ministry. How else are they going to mature? You know, we often want to cut people off, but he says, no, bring them in. Let them come in. But, here's the line, don't receive them to fight with them. Don't dispute with them. Even though that might be the one thing they want to do. They want to make a point of imposing their convictions on you or on our church. It happens all the time. And we want to lovingly and gently point them back to Jesus Christ and let them have their walk, their relationship with him, between him and them alone. And have room for all of us to live in Christ here in the congregation. I love how the New Living Translation translates verse 1. It says, accept Christians who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. So true. Receive them, fellowship with them, but when it comes to arguing, don't. Don't make it a point as you receive them in the fellowship. Just don't argue with them. He says in verse 2, he for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise. You might want to circle that. Those of you that are stronger in the faith have to be careful not to despise people that are weaker. Just to look down on them. To be upset with them. To be frustrated with them and all the emotions that come with despising someone. So those of you that might have a wider view of your freedom in Christ, be careful. Don't despise the weaker. And then those of you that might be considered weak in the faith, he says, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. And those are two things that just mess us up as believers, despising each other and judging each other. And we need to be careful of both. The issue here is not food. The issue is how do you exercise your Christian freedom? He's not speaking of the value of diets physically. He's not speaking of those that study such things, say a vegetarian diet is very healthy for you, very good for you. That's not what he's speaking of here. He's speaking of in relationship to your spirituality, be very, very careful when people are different than you in the realm of the gray areas. Would you turn over to Matthew chapter 23? Because when we do come across people that make non-essentials essentials, we need to be careful. Jesus actually described what this looked like as using the scribes and the Pharisees as an example. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, he gives us insight of what this looks like if you haven't experienced it yet. And Jesus is speaking to the multitudes here. And to his disciples, verse 2, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. This is a place of spiritual authority, a place of teaching. They sit in Moses' seat. That's the position they had. Therefore, what they tell you to observe, that observe and do. So when they're teaching you correctly, and they're sitting in that authority, and they're giving you the direction from from the word, from the scrolls, from the Torah, do what they tell you to do. But do not do according to their works. Don't follow their example, but follow the clear teachings. And then he says, for they say and do not do. You might just want to mark that. They say and do not do. That is one of the best biblical definitions of hypocrisy, that you say and don't do. A good definition indeed. We'll continue with the issue of hypocrisy and much more next time when Pastor Ed Taylor returns. Thanks for joining us for Abounding Grace and part of our study in Romans. If you'd like to hear this message again, visit our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com. You can subscribe to the Abounding Grace podcast there, too, at AboundingGraceRadio.com.
We also offer an app, which is another great way to listen to Pastor Ed. Just search for Calvary Aurora. Each month, we pick out a book that we think can really help your walk with the Lord. And here in August, it's The Third Option by Miles McPherson. It's not hard to see that racial tension is high in America today. And maybe you're wondering, is there hope for a racially divided nation? I'm glad to say there is. In the third option, Pastor Miles shares what that is and encourages the reader to rise above the issues that divide us and be part of something bigger. You'll also be challenged to fully embrace God's goodness and power. To get a copy of the third option for a donation of $25 or more, just call us at 877-30-GRACE. That number again is 877-30-GRACE. And we also want to remind you that we are listener-supported. Abounding Grace airs all across the nation on stations like this one. But in order to do this, we look to our listeners to help cover the costs. You can make a secure donation on our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Just click on Donate. Or if you'd rather call, here's the number 877-30-GRACE. Join us next time as we study through Romans with Pastor Ed Taylor and learn of God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. 